Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum's special recall election coverage, California's recall process has been called confusing, expensive, and undemocratic as voters realized a governor elected by a clear majority could be replaced by a fringe candidate earning a sliver of the vote. This hour, we'll look at proposals to change the recall process, including how it makes the ballot and who gets to replace the leader of the nation's most populous state. We get your thoughts after this news. This is special election coverage on Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Governor Gavin Newsom's decisive defeat of the recall is fueling questions of how and why the recall made the ballot at all, adding to criticisms the more than $276 million price tag so far to even hold the election. As we got closer to Election Day, Berkeley IGS polled Californians and asked them how they felt about the right to recall elected officials and about proposals for reform. And joining me now to talk about the results is Mark DiCamillo, director of Berkeley's Institute for Governmental Intergovernmental Studies. Hi, Mark DiCamillo. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mina. So, Mark, on the first question, the right to recall a governor and other elected officials, it sounds like... It's a right most Californians hold dear. Right. Uh, We asked people, do you think it's a good thing or bad thing that the California Constitution provides a way to recall elected officials like the governor? And 75% of voters uh, said it was a good thing. Just 24% said it was a bad thing. And it's interesting that that spanned uh, all parties, Uh, 62% of Democrats, 96% of Republicans, 75% no party preference voters. So it's a (laughs) bipartisan agreement that uh, voters like that as part of the Constitution. Interestingly, you also found that overall majorities of respondents also favored reforming the recall process. Can you talk about what reforms got the most support? Right. We offered five different possible reforms. These were just proposals that have been put out there. We're not advocating any one of them, uh, but we just wanted to see what voters would think of these five. The first one had to do with um, ensuring that if there is no uh, candidate in the replacement election that receives 50% of the vote, then there should be a runoff election between the top two vote getters. Uh, That was uh, supported 
by a greater than three to one margin. Uh, hmm. And it, it's one of the few ones that even large proportions of Republicans agreed to. And I, and I think it mainly has to do with the fact that Californians are used to that in a lot of other local types of elections where there's not a 50% majority winner. What else? It sounds like people were interested in toughening the rules that apply to recalling state elected officials. Right. Uh, the access, I, mean, I think this year's election did uh, tip off that maybe our recall uh, procedures that make it too lenient and easy to qualify something onto the ballot. Uh, when we asked voters about uh, the number of signatures required for a recall election. Currently, it's 12% of the voters in the last statewide election. We offered, what could, uh, would you favor oppose increasing that to 25%? Uh, that was supported, 55 to 30%. Uh, also, toughening the rules that apply to recalling state elected officials so that office holders can only be recalled for cause, such as when an office holder is found to have carried out illegal or unethical behavior, that also got two to one support. So I think uh, just having these, uh, you know, voters really want to limit uh, these kinds of elections that seem to be based more on personality and perhaps politics. Do you think they wanted to limit who could be a replacement candidate or at least make that process a little tougher? Uh, yes, there was another uh, provision. Uh, if 51% uh, agreed, 32% disagreed, it basically asked people about making it more difficult for candidates specifically in a gubernatorial re replacement election, because that's where most of the publicity comes from, by requiring them to meet a higher threshold than the current $4,000 filing fee and 7,000 voters signature threshold. So voters were also supportive of that idea. I see. So it takes $4,000 and 7,000 signatures to get your name on that ballot. It sounds like one of the big things, though, even if generally reforms are being supported here, or that sort of the the wind that is blowing, that it's not bipartisan by any stretch beyond just that initial question of the right to recall being one that both parties tend to support. Right. Republicans are resistant to just about all of those, except for maybe the runoff election idea. There you get a significant proportion of Republicans agreeing. But the other three, I think Republicans see it as you know, closing the window of opportunity for them hmm. to try to defeat uh, a Democratic office holder. Uh, you know, in this day and age, I think Republicans know that they have relatively little chance of winning statewide elections if you have a fairly large turnout, as you usually do in statewide general elections. So, um, you know, they want a, a backdoor way, perhaps, of uh, trying to defeat an elected Democrat. Mark DiCamillo, director of the Berkeley Institute for Governmental Studies poll. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mina. Let me bring two more people into the conversation. Guy Marzarotti is with us, a reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Guy, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Marisa Lagos is also with us, politics correspondent for KQED, also co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown. Marisa, glad to have you on. Always happy to be here, Mina. Let me get your reaction to what Mark DiCamillo just left us with in terms of why Republicans lack enthusiasm for recall reforms. Yeah, I mean, I would bet that if the shoe was on the other foot, these numbers would be the exact opposite. I mean, I really think it's a function less of like sort of uh, philosophical, you know, sort of 
positioning on this recall issue and more of the reality on the ground in California, which is, you know, this really was a potentially once in a generation opportunity to seize control here. And if you were in support of this recall um, and somebody's asking you, well, do you think the recall process works? You're like, yeah, of course it works. We're about to vote on it. Um, so I don't know. That's that would be my read. I think if if Democrats were in the same position, they would probably have similar opinions as Republicans. And so now Democrats are definitely, I think, reading the tea leaves and saying this is a good time for us to, if we want to reform the recall process, to do it. We've had State Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, Guy Marzarati, saying that discussions are underway to place a constitutional amendment on recalls in front of voters next year. So I'm curious what you're hearing in terms of what's being proposed potentially and who is proposing it. Well, I think right now a lot of review and discussion will probably come before any uh, changes. We've already heard um, from some of the uh, state legislators directly involved in election lawmaking, uh, both in the Bay Area, Mark Berman from the Peninsula and Senator Steve Glazer from the East Bay. They say they're going to launch a series of hearings in the coming months uh, regarding the recall rules ahead of possible changes in the 2022 uh, session. I think, you know, those the things that they'll hear from are kind of along the lines of what Mark laid out um, that, you know, could come in and that have been tried in other states. I mean, there's other places California can look to, whether it's uh, Arizona, which has laws directing that recalls can only happen if there's, you know, specific malfeasance by officials um, or, you know, other states that have higher thresholds, maybe a quarter of the governor, uh, a quarter of the electorate in a gubernatorial election. Although that's an insane amount of people in California. That's almost the amount that actually voted for the recall. Right. But I think those, you know, examples of some things that I guess could be uh, could be discussed in these hearings that'll that'll be coming up. Well, Maurice, I heard that State Senator Ben Allen, a Santa Monica Democrat, has proposed allowing a politician facing a recall to run as a replacement candidate as well. And I remember a lot of listeners asking about this in terms of why Newsom wasn't on the replacement side or whether Newsom could be written in. Yeah, I mean, that's one idea, although it seems a little bizarre, right? <laughs> like, wh- why? I mean, because I think the the most sort of cogent critique of the process beyond, like, the threshold is this question around why is it that somebody could be elected governor with such, a, you know, a small amount of support compared to potentially, even if, you know, the sitting governor got 49 percent, you know, just the numbers. Right. So you could look at the situation where like, OK, Newsom got 5.8 million no votes, if you want to count that as him. And Larry Elder only got 2.3 million votes. So if if that had flipped and, you know, Larry Elder could have become governor with far less support, um, that to me seems like the thing that needs to be that's potentially the nightmare tackled. situation, right? Yeah. Like I mean, and and. To be fair, we've had two gubernatorial recalls and avoided that in both. Arnold Schwarzenegger True. got more votes uh, than the votes to keep Gray Davis in office in 2003. Obviously, that di- that scenario didn't play out uh, in this recall uh, in, in 2021, where, which Newsom easily survived. And I would say there are additional challenges that would come with having some kind of runoff system, right? We've now transitioned to a mail ballot universe in which we're sending everybody a ballot. There's costs incurred with that. I think a lot of the uh, calls to reform the recall process were spurred by the fact that the state spent $276 million on this election. If you're going to be holding 
potentially two elections uh, in a runoff scenario, that's just going to be even more cost added. So, right. But it does seem like it's a more democratic way to replace somebody, right, is to actually have that runoff and to, to give voters. Because I think that this is, I mean, you know, we've talked about this before around ranked choice voting. Um, it's it's like hard in some ways for people to kind of wrap their heads around, I think, those types of ballots. And, hmm. and you know, it's and it's not a clear choice. You're not really sure what the choice is if this is the kind of, I don't know, it's like stew of candidates and yes or no. And it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Guy, remind us quickly what it requires to reform the recall process. And a lot of these proposals, what it would require to make those changes. Right. So since this was put into law by the voters, it would have to go back to the voters. I mean, that's something that could either be done through the signature process or, or, you know, by the the state legislature with a two thirds vote. Um, But ultimately, voters would have to sign off on any changes. Um, And as Mark detailed, while there might be majority support for specific changes overall, I think uh, there definitely seems to be a desire to keep the recall. Yes, but it's a constitutional amendment process, right? Because so much of the components of California's recall is laid out in the state constitution. So that's always a very high bar. Right. So either you're getting the signatures to get that before voters or it's, you know, you're going to have to get two thirds in both houses. Two thirds in both. Guy Marzarati is a reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Mark DiCamillo is director of Berkeley's Institute for Governmental Studies poll joined us early to share proposals about what uh, is being put out there with regard to reforming the recall. Marisa Lagos is politics correspondent for KQED, co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown. You, our listeners, are with us. We're talking about whether California should change its gubernatorial recall process, and if so, how? And we want to know what you think. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. It sounds like Jenny is glad to hear this conversation. Jenny tweets, I'm anxious to hear how we can reform the recall process. I'm not happy to have my taxpayer dollars being wasted or how risky it is to potentially have an inexperienced or worse governor that 10% of the voters voted for. We'll hear more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You are listening to special recall election coverage from Forum, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation by telling us what you think about the recall reform proposals that you've been hearing, or if you think the gubernatorial recall should even be abolished, which some people have said that they feel would be the way to go. 
You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Guy Marzarati, a reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And joining us now is Isaac Hale, a postdoctoral scholar at the Blum Center on Poverty, Inequality, and Democracy at UC Santa Barbara. Barbara. Isaac Hale, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me this morning. I want to dig into some of the pros and cons of the proposals that we've heard so far. One of them that was described was raising the signature threshold. And I just want to remind listeners that right now you need 12% of people who voted in the last gubernatorial election for a recall to qualify for the ballot. What do you see as the potential benefits or downsides in some people's view of raising that threshold to some proposals have been 20%, 25%? Yeah, so it's worth noting that when you look at other states around the country, 12% is an awfully low bar hmm. for recalling statewide elected officers. And I think the main advantage of raising that threshold is you will have fewer recall elections and the main disadvantage is you will have fewer recall elections, right? It's, it's all a matter of perspective. It's all a matter of whether you, the voter, whether you, the political person, think that having these frequent recalls or frequent recall attempts is a good thing or not. And that's going to be a matter of, of your own perspective. That said, I think another clear benefit of raising those thresholds and having you know, fewer recalls is that you won't have um, you know, this massive off-year election spending that we're seeing that we saw in this current recall effort. Hmm. Massive off-year election spending. The other thing that I heard as a criticism was the fact that they felt like a, a small group of people, very hardcore activists or moneyed interests, were able to get this recall on the ballot, that it wasn't really reflective with just 12% of people required, right, uh, of a broader sentiment in the state. I think that's right. I think one of the criticisms right now with the low threshold is that if you have one particularly energized core group of voters, perhaps, you know, that might be Republican Party activists, right? It might be Democratic Party activists, but you can, because of that low threshold, if you can just activate that one subset of voters, that's enough to trigger the recall election. And you don't really need broader sentiment in the electorate. And I think the idea with raising this to 20% or 25% of the most recent gubernatorial election voter population uh, would mean that you need bigger buy-in from the population at large. And I think, you know, the idea that you can buy a recall is also something that uh, State Senator Josh Newman is attempting to address with Senate Bill 660, which would ban paying signature gatherers by the signature. Hmm. Let me go to Pat in Palo Alto. Hi, Pat. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. What's Hello? on your mind? I just called because I think it's insane to spend so much money to recall a person who was elected to serve four years. I think it would be better if we have a problem. <laughs> if we have, there were a lot of people who voted um, Newsom into office. And I think those people deserve seeing him serve out his term. If those same people are upset with what he's doing, I mean, you get a chance every four years. It's insane to spend so much money. I mean, we don't, have that money to spend frivolously, you know? 
Well, Pat, you're certainly not the only person who's talked about the money that's been involved. That's been something, Isaac Hale, that a lot of people have brought up. We've heard Secretary of State Shirley Weber say that that $276 million stat right now is expected to go higher, that it will cost maybe upwards of $300 million when all is said and done. <laughs> is there any way to make this less expensive, first of all? Oh, yeah. Oh, we're talking over $300 million right now. And that's 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 some real sticker shock, right? Especially in the time of COVID, in the time of massive wildfire, in times of, you know, extreme homelessness. Uh, it seems to a lot of Californians like that's really not a good use uh, of money. With that being said, I think there's a tension between, um, you know, the desire to spend less money and the desire to have uh, inclusive, high participation elections. California Democrats have pushed initiatives like uh, all male voting. They've tried to have uh, a substantial amount of early voting. Uh, they've tried to have voter outreach, particularly to minority communities that traditionally vote at lower levels. And all of those things cost money. And so I think for the Democratic Party, which is governing the state, and for Democratic voters, there's a tension. They want to spend this money on other things besides a recall election. But also, if you want to have more open, higher participation elections, well, that's going to cost money, too. Well, and let me go to Jan in South San Francisco. Hi, Jan. Oh, good morning. Uh, just uh, to address the first point about uh, the election costing uh, money, it is an incredibly wasteful process. And we have other things that we need to deal with, obviously, you know, a housing crisis and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, sure, elections will cost money, but just to having this whole recall, I mean, it's just it's unnecessary. It's a complete waste. And the other thing that I maybe haven't heard of is, uh, you know, the governor has to focus his attention on this uh, ridiculous recall when there's other more important things he can be focusing on. And, uh, you know, it's the other important thing is that uh, if a governor does misbehave or do things that uh, voters don't like, and we already have, you know, we can impeach the governor if, if somebody is completely, you know, out of line. So I just hmm. think that uh, it, it, it's, it's a ridiculous thing having this uh, process. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the final thing I have is just a, a quick question. It seems to me that this recall was really sparked by maybe like a far right or Republicans that, uh, maybe saw a long shot as maybe gaining, uh, you know, control of, uh, you know, in a state because obviously, you know, through the normal ballot, I mean, they have really no chance at all to, you know, seek statewide office. I'm kind of curious about that. Let me go to Marisa Lagos on that, just in terms of the origins of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, to play devil's advocate here, first of all, can you put a price on democracy? <laughs> I mean, but seriously, like that was not a, a, clearly that was not a compelling argument to people who supported this. And I think that, you know, if you look at um, it's hard to tell, like, like, I think there's the pessimistic or sort of cynical view of like, oh, this was just like a ruse by a bunch of consultants to make money. And this was sort of an anti-democratic. But on the other hand, I mean, this did start with a sort of small group of people. I mean, the person who wrote the recall petition is like a retired sheriff's deputy. Um uh, which I found ironic because a big part of the recall petition is like railing against public pensions, which, you know, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I, th I think that, you know, at the end of the day, regardless of whether this got a boost from, you know, 
Newsom's actions or the pandemic or whatever, you still had millions of Californians who went out and signed this petition and did support this recall. It wasn't enough. Um, but it's it's I think it's a hard thing to argue that. You know, it, again, like back to the original point about the reforms, I think it's like very easy mm. when you are in the majority to say, oh, this is silly. But if if the situation were reversed and this were a conversation happening in a place like Georgia or Texas, Democrats would probably <laughs> be arguing the other side. Well, recall elections are expensive. And if you want to hold a quality and legitimate recall election, it will cost. The bigger question is the process. And that is really what we are digging into right now. For example, Barbara writes, had Kevin Falconer gotten more attention, independents might have considered voting for the recall. My values are concurrent with progressive Democrats. However, I would consider a Republican that was not a facsimile of Trump. In a state in which Trump lost by a landslide, Republicans should have done more to promote a candidate more acceptable as rational people. Isaac Hale, I think what Barbara's comment is getting to a little bit and what some of the frustrations have gotten to is this sense of feeling like the recall process as it stands is pretty undemocratic. So, for example, Newsom could have been recalled with 49 percent of the vote, but his replacement could have gotten a sliver of that as long as the replacement got a plurality. What are you hearing in terms of proposals around that. Some of them have been around the threshold of requiring that uh, the top two vote getters in a in the replacement side end up having a runoff and, and a majority winning. Do you see that as as a reform that could yield positive results and help people not feel like the process is undemocratic? So that is one of the reforms that uh, Mark mentioned regarding that IGS poll, although that isn't one you've been hearing so much from state legislators. Uh, something you've been hearing more often is the reform that I mentioned earlier from State Senator Ben Allen, Democrat of Santa Monica, suggesting that the recalled officer directly competes with replacement candidates rather than the current two-question format. You also see a proposal from State Senator Josh Newman, Democrat of Fullerton, who himself was recalled in 2018, saying that if a governor is recalled, they're not replaced by another candidate selected by the voters, but are instead replaced by the lieutenant governor. And those would be ways uh, to, you know, potentially potentially change that. Um, yeah. Well, Stephen writes, what is the likelihood of modifying the recall process so that if the governor is recalled, the lieutenant governor would be installed instead of some random pretender who hasn't won a majority of anything? That would really take the incentive out of the whole thing, especially here in California, I would think. Yeah, I would think so too. Um, and in terms of the likelihood, I think it's worth just reiterating what the process for this is. So in order to place a constitutional amendment on the ballot, um, what would probably need to happen would be a two thirds vote in both chambers of the California legislature and Democrats have over two thirds of the seats in both chambers. And then it would be referred to voters on the ballot for a majority vote. There's another pathway for constitutional amendments as well, which is through a signature gathering process. But given Democrats super majorities, and the fact that there are already proposals in place to modify the recall system, I think we will very likely be seeing on the ballots in 2022 uh, proposals to amend the California Constitution to change the recall process.
We're talking with Isaac Hale, postdoctoral scholar at UCSB's Blum Center. Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown. Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for KQED's Politics and Government Desk. And joining me now is Sonia Diaz, founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. Sonia Diaz, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Sonia, you have raised some concerns about the recall process disenfranchising voters of color. Can you talk a little bit about your concerns around that? In particular, the fact that the feature, one of the problematic features of a recall is that it does tend to have lower voter turnout. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that I think we all know is that campaigns, including recall pro and recall against, want to win. And they're really focused on that 50 plus one. What we saw last night was a huge differential, you know, upwards of 15 points. But ultimately, the investments are going to be focusing on a universe that is likely voters. Those are voters that are older, more affluent, and tend to be less diverse. And that means that the people participating in this already fragmented and in some ways undemocratic process are not the people that are our current and future workforce. And so what I think is really important is the plethora of new voters, including low propensity voters that are Asian American and Latinos across the state who really are not getting any sort of mobilization and investment from either side. And ultimately the outcome of an election like this is gonna be decided without their full input. How would you assess what happened this time? Did you feel like the outreach was lacking, especially in light of who ultimately it sounds like ended up showing up to vote? Well, ultimately, I think that we have to recognize that we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. And even with that, the 2020 presidential election showed us that Americans turned out and they did that last night in California. Some of the things that were really important to this were universal vote by mail. Um, Our research at UCLA has found that it doesn't lead to voter fraud, um, unlike what the Republican Party in the state and nationally is alleging. So ultimately, the capacity to be on the rolls and then get a ballot is important, but you also need that mobilization and investment, which really has to occur one-to-one, meaning in person, to have the highest likelihood of casting a ballot. And that's hard to do during COVID, and it's hard to do when campaigns are only worried about winning and not about expanding the electorate. Do you support proposals to make recall elections, not necessarily special elections, but on years where there is generally a regular midterm or general election scheduled to bring out more of the electorate? I think that there are a a medley of reforms that would make this a little more democratic. That is that we have all Californians eligible to vote actually able to participate But I do want to think about a bigger picture here, which is the role of direct democracy in the state of California, not just with recalls, but also with ballot initiatives. These are costly measures that require signatures and signature gathering. That means millions of dollars goes in to actually get something to qualify for the ballot. And ultimately, it's on the ballot and it constrains either our budget uh, for the state of California and our general fund or our policy ideation. As someone who grew up in California, I can't help but remember Proposition 187, which sought to criminalize immigrants, Proposition 209, which banned affirmative action, and this three strikes law. I see this recall effort in a straight line through that. Again, Sonia Diaz is founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. Isaac Hale is a postdoctoral scholar at the UCSB Blum Center. 
Guy Marzarati is a reporter and producer for KQED's Politics and Government Desk. Marisa Lagos is politics correspondent for KQED. And you, our listeners, are with us sharing your thoughts about the recall election and the recall reform proposals that have been put out there. Is there one that appeals to you or one that you've heard that hasn't been mentioned yet? You can call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And let me go next to Krishna in Fremont. Hi, Krishna. Hi, good morning. Uh, I don't have a problem with the recall process per se, uh, but I have a problem with uh, such frivolous uh, recalls happening. So uh, given the fact that we spent over $300 million on this, is there a way to claw back some of that money if the losing candidates get less than 40%? It sounds like you're putting a proposal out there, Krishna, though I'm not sure, uh, Isaac Hale, if that's one that's been floated. No, that isn't something that has been floated. But there have been uh, suggestions that we significantly raise the bar uh, for what kind of recalls can happen. So one of the proposals that's out there is that we institute a requirement that the recall only be for illegal or unethical activity. Currently, what we see in the Constitution, which has this part of the constitution basically hasn't been changed since 1911 when the recall system was introduced is that there's there's basically no definition of what a recallable offense is. It is whatever the voters say it is. And some people are saying uh, that what needs to happen is that we need to raise the bar like many other states have and say that only illegal or unethical behavior is recallable. Well, let me go next to Rick in Citrus Heights. Hi, Rick. Hello there. Can you hear me? I can. Go right ahead. Yes. Um, whatever recall proposals are out there, I will support because I believe that we recalled Gray Davis for all the wrong reasons because I supported the car tax to support public transportation and any services that I need because I'm disabled. And that while Governor Newsom going to the French Laundry was a big mistake, it was an honest mistake, and he apologized for it, and that I feel we should move on. I voted no on the re- against the recall because he supported fully funding the Department of Developmental Services, where I received services through the regional center. So thank you very much. Well, Rick, thanks for sharing your thoughts about the recall process. And again, if you, our listeners, want to share yours, our email address, forum at kqed.org, our Twitter handle at KQED Forum, our phone number, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You're listening to Forum. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about whether California should change its gubernatorial recall process, and if so, how. And we have 
Isaac Hale with us of UCSB's Blum Center, Sonia Diaz of uh, the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA, director there of Latino Policy and Politics Initiative, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED, and Guy Marzarati, a reporter and producer for KQED's Politics and Government Desk. And your listeners are weighing in with your thoughts. Susan writes, I'm furious at this ridiculous recall process that allows a very small vocal group of anti-vaxxers and climate deniers to force the state to spend millions to overthrow someone trying to deal with those huge issues. Guy Marzarati, one of the things that emerged during this recall campaigning process was allegations of voter fraud. And this is something that a lot of a lot of people are wondering why, if this was a process that had a very high bar anyway, very uh, unlikely that in a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one, that a process that was starting to move towards Newsom surviving this recall would invite so many claims of voter fraud. Can you talk a little bit about what you heard? Sure. I think in a lot of cases, it was a recycling of the same things that we heard uh, from some Republicans in 2020 trying to drum up false narratives about vote by mail, um, given California's system of sending everybody a ballot in the mail by default. Uh, You heard this, you know, starting a few weeks ago with former President Trump saying that California's recall election was rigged. Uh, Larry Elder had, you know, made some comments about putting together a team of lawyers to potentially challenge uh, election results. He even his ballot measure committee even uh, paid for this website on which a petition declared that before the election, Newsom has won. And we've you know done an audit and found out that there's uh, irregularities that need to be challenged. I think all of that was kind of put on halt, though, last night when Elder did end up speaking, uh, you know, in I think it was Costa Mesa to his supporters and said, look, you know, we need to, you know, handle this defeat with grace. I think he said something to the effect of we lost the battle, but not the war. But it was definitely a kind of a standard uh, concession speech by, you know, in today's age and not something in which it seemed like he was going to spend the next few weeks challenging the validity of this recall. Sonia Diaz, you were talking about concerns about voters of color being disenfranchised. I'm curious to get your reaction to that one of the main groups claiming disenfranchisement were prominent Republicans. I mean, really on brands. One of the things in looking at this recall is that there was a strategy from one party that was long term, and that was the Republican Party. That strategy was foiled by Larry Elder who essentially did the work of a Democratic staffer by getting Californians to cast a ballot. So any allegations of voter fraud, including the fact that paper ballots result in illegality is unfounded and it's dangerous. It's precisely why the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 to really re-envision, reimagine, and fill in the gaps of the Voting Rights Act. That also is not something that is specific to places like Texas and Arizona, but California has a role to play in that, and we're seeing the California Republican Party um, beat that drum, and that drum is unfounded. Well, let me bring Angelo Carasone into the conversation, president and CEO of Media Matters. Angelo, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I know that Media Matters has been tracking a few stories of alleged voter fraud in California. And one of the stories that you tracked involved er an early voting location in Woodland Hills. Can you talk about Mm -hmm. this quickly? Sure. I mean, basically, the issue is there was an initial local news report that pointed out that some individuals were showing up to polling locations uh, and were being told that they had already voted. 
uh, and it didn't really get into all the details, but um, that was basically the initial report. And what the right wing took away from that uh, and radically exploited was that so that tons of people who uh, were being falsely denied the ability to vote. And so we reached out, it was a really easy thing to cl clarify, we reached out to election officials and what they told us was that, yeah, a couple of the machines that they had uh, had some kind of technical glitch on them and they were able to fix them pretty quickly. And not, not a single person that was told uh, that they had already voted incorrectly uh, was denied the ability to vote. They were all issued provisional ballots um, and they swapped out the machines. And you know, and so that was an example where the kind of normal things that can make it happen and the systems that we have in place to check these things were actually an example of the system working were actually exploited uh, by the right wing media. So how did this story gain so much traction in right wing media? I mean, a big piece of it is that the right wing media has been saying this narrative um, that that only election fraud, at least for up until this point, can account for the results of the Cal of California. And so what they did is they backfill that narrative with examples. And so when that story broke over the weekend, it started to be repeated by right wing officials online. And before you know it, it's on Breitbart, it's on talk radio, it's getting picked up on One American News and all the traditional right wing echo chamber. And that's how a story an anecdote, a small example that has been radically taken you know, at a time and place actually ends up helping reinforce the broader false narrative that the election is being stolen. Sonia Diaz was talking about her concerns around this being the Republican playbook and the California Republican Party playing into it as well. I'm just curious, based on your analysis of media, what you think? I think that it is, it is definitely not just limited to California. And that, broadly speaking, the narrative leading up to the election, regardless of how long they continue to push it afterwards, all of these little anecdotes, like that one that I just pointed out, still have legs. And they're going to continue to be pointed to um, as causation for why there needs to be harsher, stronger voter protection laws, which are actually just suppressive uh, efforts you know, disguised. Uh, to respond to a problem that doesn't seem to exist. Um, you know, that story was an example of the system and the checks working, um, and yet that will be exploited to help make it harder for people to vote, um, and more largely uh, to continue to attack and undermine, you know, the idea about democracy as a whole. And I think that's, to me, the real takeaway. Marisa Lagos, that's one of the things that I was hearing, too, in terms of the recall, its process, and also the attacks of voter fraud, that they are both in service to essentially uh, an anti-majoritarian future, that that it is a way of minority rule, essentially. I I'm wondering if you heard that through line as well. Oh, I mean, you can see it. I, I think there was a lot of similarities between, say, the campaign of Larry Elder and Donald Trump in 2016. And a lot of people were asking us ahead of time, well, because it became pretty clear in the final week that Newsom was in a very strong position. And people were saying, well, how can you know that? I mean, 2016. Well, first of all, we don't have an electoral college system in California, right? So you already have a more direct democracy, you know, to begin with. Um, and certainly, I think that this is like, I mean, this was the opportunity for the Republican Party because they are outnumbered nearly two to one, right? This was the moment to try to get control of the state. And at the end of the day, um, 
not only did the recall lose, but like if you look at Larry Elder's numbers on paper, he got 46 percent, 47 percent of the vote. But in reality, he actually only got about 20 something percent because so many people just skipped that second question entirely. And so, you know, I think that that does really speak to it didn't happen, but the potential for that minority rule, um, of course, you know, that would have required enough people voting yes on the recall. And I think, you know, one lesson we can take from this is regardless of the systems that exist is that if 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 people get engaged in a democratic process, they can influence it. Right. And so the biggest challenge for Newsom in this situation was not whether, you know, he had the base of support, but whether those people would actually come out and cast their ballots. And and they did. And and I got to say, like, I, you know. The, the nation spends a lot of time hating on California for a variety of reasons, Mina. And one outcome I see from this election, and quite frankly, most of ours, is that even if we would like to see higher voter participation, Californians do get engaged. And they do think, I think, deeply about these questions when it comes to ballot measures or recalls or whatever else. Um, and, and I think that that is a, a good news for our democracy, um, despite all of the other challenges we face. Well, Mike writes, what lessons might the GOP take from this election regarding the strategy of claiming voter fraud? Do we know how much it may have discouraged GOP voters? Will voters buy this argument in the midterms? Guy, what do you think? Well, I think there's no doubt it shifted GOP voter behavior in California. Um, and that happened in 2020 as well. And I think that's a direct effect of the claims uh, that Donald Trump was making about mail voting. It used to be in California that Republicans largely vote were the dominant male voters, uh, early vote by mail voters. And that's completely changed to whereas now, you know, Democrats dominate the early vote by mail and Republicans have shifted much more towards voting in person on Election Day. Um, and, you know, if you're looking at that from a from a party organizing perspective, that is limiting their get out the vote uh, operation. Um, and I think it just remains to be seen how long that tail is in future elections. And let's go to caller Mahendra in Oakland. Hi, Mahendra. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Go right ahead. Yes. Uh, so I'm a Ph.D. candidate in political science at UC Berkeley. I research voting systems all the time. They are a social choice. Uh, basically, in the American uh System, there's generally four systems that are generally considered. One is plurality voting to break, uh, to, to resolve recalls. But the possibility of that is that you could have a governor who has done something corrupt and they could win uh, with a very small plurality of the vote, like 30, 20%, whatever, right? Uh, another possibility is to use uh, instant runoff or top two. But then you need to have two ballots and that could potentially double the cost of running the recall. Uh, the, other, the, the fourth option that's popular was recently adopted in 2018 in uh, Fargo and in 2020 in uh, St. Louis is approval voting. So with approval voting, what voters do is they give the, they measure their approval rating for each candidate. They say they vote yes if they approve the candidate and no if they don't. And then whichever candidate has the largest approval rating wins the election. And what happened in St. Louis was in 2017, they had a mayoral election where the winning candidate had less than i think it was less than 30 or less than 40 percent of the vote because it was split between four major candidates and then they adopted approval voting and in the uh 2021 election the winning candidate with approval voting had more than 51 percent of the vote uh so i was wondering if the uh participants in the call in the uh forum here could uh, discuss uh, their thoughts about approval voting and what they've heard about thank mm. you thanks mahendra isaac hale do you have any reaction 
Yeah, sure. So uh, as the caller mentioned, uh, approval voting is used in some, some parts of the country. We don't see a lot of use of approval voting here in California. Something that has been much more at the forefront is something the caller mentioned is instant runoff voting, the alternative vote. That's something we see in cities like Oakland and San Francisco, which utilize these ranked choice ballots or instant runoff ballots in order to where voters rank their choices. And this basically gets around having uh, a two round system. And that is something that would be compatible theoretically uh, with a recall ballot, right? You could have a yes, no recall question, and then you could have a second ballot, which would be a second question, which was a ranked choice ballot. And you would not need to have two separate elections to do this. And you would get around the problem of a candidate potentially winning um, uh, the governor's, the gubernatorial race with like 30% of the vote in the second question with a ranked choice ballot that wouldn't be possible. Now, whether or not the candidate being recalled would be allowed to participate in that second ballot is uh, a, an entirely, entirely different question. And there are plenty of criticisms to be had of ranked choice voting as well. Uh, but it is an interesting proposal, although not one that you're really seeing uh, from reformers in, or from proposed reforms in the legislature or from activists on the ground. We've been talking about whether California should change its gubernatorial recall process, and if so, how, and about false allegations of voter fraud in this election, which have been surfacing in the last few weeks. We're talking with Isaac Hale, postdoctoral scholar at the UCSB Blum Center, Angelo Carasone, president and CEO of Media Matters. Sonia Diaz is with us, founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA, and Guy Marzarati and Marisa Lagos from KQED's politics team. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim, and let me go next to Dan in San Luis Obispo. Hi, Dan. Hi. Um, I had a thought um, that uh, we could maybe borrow from the British Parliament, where they hold no-confidence votes as a preliminary step. And you could set up, it would seem to me, some sort of preliminary process whereby the state legislators would hold a, a, a preliminary vote before this would actually go to the electorate. And you could set up something where you might have perhaps a certain number of signatures required in each electorate uh, or electoral district that would then force a vote in either the Assembly or the Senate. And if, if you had a no-confidence vote that succeeded, then you actually take it to the legislature uh, for setting up a, an actual election. Anyway, that's my, my thought. Maybe well, something Dan? to consider. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Sonia Diaz, I was wondering if you might have a reaction to that in terms of a step process. You know, I think it's really interesting right now in terms of the procedural and the separation of powers. Obviously, this is an issue for state constitutional law, but I want to pivot and think about what some goals might be. And so part of what we're seeing in terms of good government, and we see this with the California Independent Redistricting Commission, is a way to bolster Republican voice and Republican strategy in a state where the Republican Party is on the decline. We saw that that was especially true in the comparison of the 2003 recall to the 2021 recall. So I'd be mindful about the ways in which our legislature um, is actually reflective of the voices of California's voters and administering their role in terms of policy incubators. Now, in terms of this kind of differential staggering, one consideration may be to what extent do we have to wed ourselves to more archaic kind of accountability measures and 
to what extent can we actually have the vote matter, but make sure that everybody has access to the ballot box. I think that California, again, needs to lead the way here. Uh, we saw some of that with historic turnout last night, but I'm hesitant to move forward with reforms that seem um, to be race neutral, because we know that they ultimately likely involve disparate impacts for black and brown communities. Isaac Hill, what do you think is the most, is the proposal most likely to be before voters in 2022? Isaac Hale, are you there? Uh, sorry about that. That's, That's a all great right. question. Um, and I think that we are very, very likely to see uh, an amendment before voters that raises the signature requirement. The current 12% signature requirement when you're looking at other states with recall elections in the country is very, very low. 20 or 25% is much more common. And the current proposal from State Senator Josh Newman would raise the signature requirement to 20%. And I think we are very likely to see that. Even uh, without the constitutional amendment process, I think we're very likely to see Governor Gavin Newsom sign SB 660, which is currently on his desk, which would uh, ban paying signature gatherers by the signature. And the argument from proponents of this reform is that it would make it much harder for wealthy donors, corporations, special interest groups uh, to be able to buy a recall election. Marisa Lagos, I know that you cover the 2003 recall. I know that you know that every governor pretty much is subject to some attempt at a recall. I'm curious how how you would characterize the desire for reform now. Is it something you feel like you've seen before or, is, or are the voices for reform stronger than ever? I do think they're stronger. I still have questions about whether there's like the kind of political will to to take this on and, you know, spend money on it, assuming you can't get two thirds in the legislature. Ballot measures are expensive, right? Um, but it was such a different scenario in 03. Gray Davis was deeply unpopular. Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger was pretty popular. Um, and I think in hindsight looks like, you know, for all the eye rolls at the time, a much more serious candidate than a lot of the folks we saw line up. So I think it might happen, um, but I, I'm not going to make any predictions yet because who knows what takes the legislator, legislature's attention in the coming days and weeks. Well, let me thank you, Marisa Lagos, and our slate of experts today who explored this question of reforming the gubernatorial process and all that emerged during this recall. Guy Marzarati, Isaac Hale, Sonia Diaz, and Angelo Carason. Susan Britton produced today's special segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.